This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Actress, author Marina Anderson, uh, the former wife of the late Hollywood star David Carradine, uh, will be joining us. June 3rd marks the 9th anniversary. June 3rd, that's today. The uh, the 9th anniversary of uh, David's mysterious death in a Bangkok hotel uh, room. Uh, Carradine, of course, the star of Kung Fu. I used to love that TV show uh, back in the early 70s, 72 to 75. And, and of course, he had a string of movies, including uh, Kill Bill and... Uh, uh, he and Marina were married for nearly four years, beginning in 1998. And she will be here, Marina Anderson, in the first hour, along with psychic Michael Bodine, author of Growing Up Psychic, From Skeptic to Believer. Uh, and they will talk about uh, David's death. Nick Redfern is back with us again tonight, this morning, second hour. Nick has a brand new book out as of June 5th called The Black Diary. Men in Black, Women in Black, Black-Eyed Kids, and Dangerous Books. Uh, we are coming up on the 50th anniversary of Bobby Kennedy's assassination. Hard to imagine. Uh, just a couple of days away. And I was reading recently where Robert Kennedy Jr., who is now 64, he was just a kid, 14 years old when his father was gunned down at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And Bobby Jr. went to visit Sirhan Sirhan at the state prison just outside of San Diego recently. He met with him for three hours. And Robert now supports the call for, a, for reinvestigating the assassination, which is being led by Paul Schrade, uh, who was also there that night at the ambassador. He was walking behind Bobby Kennedy and was also hit with a bullet. He was hit in the head, uh, but survived. Uh, so next week, we're going to move things around a little bit. We'll uh, we'll dedicate an hour next week to the RFK 50th anniversary. 
Now, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Flying V Gibson guitar, technical producer, my fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. And Ian has just returned from Nashville uh, with his van, uh, with his band, uh, The Grease Marks. Howdy, yep. And uh, so, hey, what is happening with that album? You were in Los it's Angeles. It's out. It's out. It's out. It's out. Wild Records. It's out. Wild Records. That's the label, yeah. Okay. This was the one that you recorded in Los Angeles? Yep, in December. And what's the album called? It's self-titled, Grease Marks. Grease Marks. All right. It's always the first album is self-titled. Yeah. And then the second one will be called Second Helping or something like that, right? (laughs) So how do people get the the album? Uh, You can go to greasemarks.com and you can find it through there. Greasemarks.com. How many how many tracks on the album? I think fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. Is it vinyl? Not yet. You you will be releasing on vinyl. Hopefully, though. yes. Excellent. Yeah. Limited pressing too, so get the CDs while you can. Excellent. Congratulations, yeah. buddy. We're Thank so you. proud of you. One day he'll move away and forget us all. Uh, and I hope that happens when you go. <laughs> Forget us. Just keep going, my friend. Uh, in studio with me on the Rickenbacker guitar and a ca- bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, story producer Albert Vinzel, and on the Hammond B3, live stream producer Ryan White. All right. David Carradine uh, was an American actor, martial artist, noted again for his leading role as a peace-loving Shaolin monk, monk uh, Kwai Chang Kane in the TV series Kung Fu. He was also known for playing Frankenstein in Death Race 2000 back in 1975 and Bill in both Kill Bill films. On June the 3rd, 2009, nine years ago, he was found dead in a closet in his hotel room in Bangkok, Thailand, due to what was officially ruled a fatal autoerotic asphyxiation accident. Although I believe neither of my guests tonight believe that's what really happened. Marina Anderson is an established actress, published author. Uh, David Carradine, The Eye of My Tornado, is uh, a new edition is out. She's a publicist, a personal manager. Uh, it's called the Media Hound PR. She's a freelance writer specializing in entertainment. And uh, she was, as I say, the wife and personal manager of uh, David's, responsible for really resurrecting his career, which culminated in the Quentin Tarantino hit film Kill Bill. Uh, her, diver- her diverse roles include starring, guest and supporting credits in TV, feature films, webisodes, and national commercials such as Bones, opposite Emily Deschanel and David uh, Boranaz, uh, The Mentalist, opposite Robin Tooney, Dexter, opposite Jennifer Carpenter, Law & Order LA, uh, Seinfeld, Emmy-nominated web series Sophie Chase, Desperate Housewives, uh, also she was in Forever Night, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, which was a recurring role opposite uh, David, Largo Winch, and CBS's highly rated series, Scales of Justice. Marina Anderson, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, Richard. How are you? Well, it takes me like half the show just to read your wonderful credits. (laughs) That's so cute. (laughs) Hard to believe nine It's been a while since we've talked. It has. It has. We're always on email back and forth. Um, Yes. Nine years. My word. Um, Let me me first introduce, uh, let's get Michael in here. Michael Bodine, a professional psychic for more than 35 years, uh, giving readings, performing ghost busting, speaking at events and conventions. His clients range from celebrities like Melanie Griffith and Gary Busey uh, to to financiers and dog walkers. And, of course, the author of Growing Up Psychic, From Skeptic to Believer, which is available at Amazon. Michael Bodine, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? 
I'm great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, the burst of energy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Love to hear it. So, um, Marina, um, let's first of all just briefly your relationship with David. Obviously, you know we, we all know a very deeply uh, troubled individual. Very immensely talented individual. How much of, of, of that did you know uh, about David before you met, before you were married to him? You know, obviously there was some substance abuse and there was, a, you know, some violence around this gentleman. Uh, you know, you, you hear things and I don't, I'm always kind of a skeptic, you, you know, I want to learn firsthand. I, I learned pretty quickly about his uh, uh, other personality, shall we say. Um, but, um, I, you know, I was just so much in love with the guy. Um, I, I, I didn't let it deter me. I, I was on a mission and, um, I wanted to see him, um, back on track with his career because I thought he was such an incredibly talented genius. And, um, I just, um, I just kind of tunnel visioned on what the mission was and, um, I kind of lo- got lost in, in the shuffle. I, I'm, I have to add this. I've known Michael since... 1988, and he has been like a constant um, uh, go-to counselor for me and dear friend. And so when David passed away, of course, I called Michael about it, and um, uh, I wrote about him in my book, Michael, as to what he said. So um, to backtrack a little bit, um, to get through those uh, hard times with David, I, I would consistently call Michael for advice and insight and of which he was uh, enormously uh, helpful with this and this is while <laughs> while you were still married to David yes and and you but before da- before David during David and after David right. <laughs> all right and you managed <laughs> while you were with David he was sober for the most part uh, when I first met David no he was a court and a half of vodka a day he was pretty public about it um, when we moved back to LA in 1996. Um, it was really clear to him that he had to get sober um, to get uh, his career going again. And that's when I, I took over as his manager and publicist and, and uh, went on the warpath to accomplish that. Uh, I knew part of that mission was also to help me because um, my reputation kind of went in, uh, I can't say the toilet, but um, it, it did a little uh, damage. It had to do damage control on my own career because of uh, people knowing that I was involved with David. It was not a good situation. So um, I, I wanted to do right by him, but also at the same time, um, I, I was afraid of what it was doing to my own career. And, um, and, and But during the six years, we did get back on track, and uh, he did get sober, and he stayed sober for those six years. However, um, I have to catch that with um, when I wrote the book, I consulted with Dr. Drew Pinsky, and uh, we concluded, or I concluded, that um, David was evidently on uh, opiates to help smooth out that um, uh, getting off of the alcohol. And I didn't know that. I, I was totally clueless. And um, it was a, a very interesting revelation to me. <laughs> and David Carradine, the, the, eye, the Eye of My Tornado, a new edition is out now, available? Yes. Um, the new edition, I did more research on his um, uh, demise, and uh, there's new stories in there and, and some new pictures, and so I updated it um, because I, I uh, investigated his stuff myself. 
Yes, let's. Uh, and Michael, I will, I will, I'll get you in here in a moment. I, but I want no to. Worries, no worries. We're coming up on a break here, but uh, let's just start this conversation now, and then we'll continue after the break. Marina, just take us back to how did you find out about? Uh, first of all, what was David doing in Bangkok in two thousand and nine? Uh, he was doing a film. Uh, I believe it was called Stretch. And um, so he was in the middle of uh, filming when this all happened. They found him in his uh, in in the closet in his hotel room, and again, the official cause was uh, autoerotic asphyxiation. Uh, but obviously, you uh, have very serious reasons to doubt that. Michael will uh, Michael Bodine, a psychic, will join us as well after the break. Marina Anderson, actress, author, publicist, personal manager, and uh, as I say, the. Uh, the former wife of actor David Carradine will discuss his death when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Marina Anderson, actress, uh, former wife of the late David Carradine. We're discussing his passing. It was nine years ago this very day, found in a hotel room in Bangkok where he was uh, filming. Uh, Michael Bodine is a psychic, the author of Growing Up Psychic, From Skeptic to Believer, and has known Marina uh, for... I guess, 30 years. Uh, a long time. A long time, yes, very long time. So, Marina, when were you first skeptical of the, uh, the, the official cause of death, which was, again, it was autoerotic asphyxiation? Uh, it, it, the first, uh, first thing that I saw on, online, I mean, I got a call from a mutual friend of ours, and I went online, and I went, no, 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 that's... The, the, the basic scenario was, I felt, accurate because of... Um, sexual preferences, but not autoerotic, which means one by oneself. Um, he was never one to fly solo, shall we say. So that did not ring true to me. <clears throat> so I, I felt something was wrong and gut feeling. Um, <clears throat> intuitively, I knew something was not right. And uh, that's when I called Michael. <laughs> All right, Michael. So when she first asked you to... I mean, how do you approach a, a situation like this? How do you, as a psychic, uh, attempt to investigate a, a murder scene? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, it, it's, um, gosh, you know, a long time ago, my sister and I, we used, to, we used to work with the cops just to find dead bodies, which sucked, because, you know, when you find a body, it's kind of depressing. So, but, so we stopped doing it. But when we, when, this is going to sound a little odd, but when you um, when you do that kind of stuff, you, you try to tap into the person. You try to tap into the person's soul and figure out what's going on and what their attitude's like and what their thinking is. And um, a lot of times when we were looking for these bodies, the soul would tell us where it was and the circumstances in which it, it died. And um, and so that's why we were able to find it because they would it would be like. You know, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, you're getting colder kind of thing. We would be driving, you're looking in a certain area. And, um, and it's the same kind of thing when when something like this comes up. You, you just sort of check into the soul and you, um, you try and get an idea of what was going on, you know, what was really going on. And, and um, 
Are you able to, you, do you remote view, like, would you remote view this, the actual crime scene? Yeah, you can. It's, yeah, you can. I mean, I, I, I have. Um, the, it's, it's like watching a movie, you know? It, it's like they, they show you this, um, you, you concentrate on the person's name, and then all of a sudden you get all this stuff. And, and then it's like they, they show you this movie. And it's, it's kind of an odd thing, but um, and it happens really fast. Like you get all this information. It's like, you know, if you ever, uh, um, if you get a certain smell and it reminds you of something, like when you're a kid or, yes. or you know, certain things, like, and all these memories rush in and, and you can kind of feel all that stuff and it only takes a sec. It's the same kind of thing with this, except it's a little bit more um, detailed. You just, you just get more stuff. And, um, but it's like you're there and you can, you can smell it. You can almost feel it. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing, but it's, um, it happens so fast, you know, it just happens really quick. And you know what? Honestly, God, I don't remember what I said about the Davis <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> now, but, he, but does he, does he appear to you, Michael? So did, does he appear to you? Do you do you say you know? Do you reach out to him and and ask yeah, you, for information? Yeah, you can feel him. You can feel his anger and his frustration and his confusion. And you know, he was not. This was not something that he wanted to do. It wasn't like it was like he was pissed. Like, oh man, what the hell was that? You know, what was I? You know, what was that? And and it wasn't. It, it, it wasn't like it. Um. It wasn't something like you could tell that it was intentional or something that he was planning on doing. Um, it, it was more like, because I, I knew David a little bit, and, um, and I, think, I think he was embarrassed. I think he was like, oh, geez, of all things to do and of all places, you know, this is, um, it, it was like, this is, it, it just, it, something didn't feel right with the whole thing. Um, so... Yeah, I you know I don't remember the specifics of it because, like, like you said, it was like nine years ago. But it was, it, it was around. It was a, it was like that feeling of something, um, that sense like something's not that right. That is what you said. You said I remember you distinctly saying he is pissed. <laughs> yeah, well, I know he, was, I yeah. know he was pissed, and you can tell like when people, um, you know, sometimes when people pass and it's kind of a shock, it's like they look at themselves going, "Holy crap, what the heck happened?" and um, and then they start to realize and put it all together, and it's like, oh man! And I think he uh, and I remember thinking that or, or feeling just how pissed he was, how embarrassed he was, how like of all the things, you know, this is—it's almost like poetic justice. Like, oh great, you know, right? Hancock, um, that kind of thing. Marina, at the uh, time of his death, I mean, what was his state? I mean, I don't know how how often you had communicated with him since. You, when, since you were divorced, but what, do you know, was he in a good place mentally, emotionally? Um, I was not in contact with him. We, I, I, I uh, shut the door to him uh, quite a while before that when he, he turned his back on helping my colleague Lulu out. Um, <clears throat> but I do know that he was hoping that Kill Bill would lead to more A-list films, and it never did. I know he was incredibly disappointed that he wasn't working with the directors that he wanted, uh, and that wouldn't have changed. So, um, but on, on the you know the, the other side of the coin is he was always happy when he was working, 
Um, but I do not believe he was working on the level of projects that he was really hoping Kill Bill would lead to for him. So in that sense, I don't believe that he was truly happy. And from other reports and uh, mutual friends, as well as strangers that I would talk to, bump into, I don't, I don't believe he was really a happy person. Was he? Was Which he, is sad. Yes, of yeah. course. Was he drinking again? Was he taking drugs? Yeah, he, he was drinking. He, he went back to the alcohol. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I ran into him, you know, socially a couple of times, and I could, I could smell it. And I, I, could, I could tell. I could tell in interviews how his pacing was and talking. I, yeah, he was definitely um, drinking, yeah. And now he was in his early 70s. Did he need to keep working financially, or was it just something that he loved to do? Um, well, I can't comment after we divorced, but yes, I believe that he would have to keep working. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Michael, was, um, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Marina. No, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in my book. I mean, the, the, he owed the IRS a lot of money, and um, so, yeah, he had to get himself uh, clear. So he, he had to work, yeah. Michael, when you have a, a, an individual who has such a strong uh, personality, yeah. like a David Carradine, uh, are they the same... Are they the, do they exhibit the sort of the same character traits in death or on the other side as they do in life? I mean, is, when he comes through, is he is he the same as he was in life? Well, you know, it's funny it, it, um, when people the when people pass, it's such a shock. I think to, to realize that they're not really dead. You know, I think. Um, some of them aren't sure if, just, if, it, if they're going to die or some of them don't know or some of them, I think, just think that they're going to just, you know, be asleep for the rest of their, or, you know, they're just going to black out. And, and I think it's really a shock for some people. And it definitely seemed like a shock for him. Like, uh-oh, you know, the, <laughs> I'm still alive. And it was and some of the stuff that he did, you know, he probably felt like, oh, man, I might have to um, answer for some of this stuff. So I think he was a little bit... Uh, in shock and a little panicked and a little um, like, oh man, now what do I do? <laughs> kind of thing. Cause, you know, and that happens a lot. Some people are more uh, comfortable with it, but some people really have a hard time with it. And, and he definitely did. I think he was pissed, but I think he was trying to be pissed because he didn't want to think about the reality of what was going on. You know, it was like it was easier for him to be mad than to realize that he's not dead and, and now he's got to figure out what to do next. And, um, so I think for him, I, it, you know, that arrogance and a lot of that uh, ego that people have here really disappears quick when you when you pass because everything looks really different, you know, and everything uh, has such a finality, you know, as far as the physical body and and the things that they couldn't do and the things that they can't do and the reality of all that and and just who they are and how they how it really doesn't matter, you know, if they were famous, if they were rich or anything like that. It's just like. You know, it was all about learning and what did they learn. And, you know, it's just, it, it freaks some people out. And um, and some people are, like I said, some people are okay with it. But he was definitely um, not okay with the situation. You know? Sure. I like, mean, a, a lot of karma, wow. a lot of baggage there, obviously. Oh, my God, yeah. And, you know, it scares me sometimes thinking about it, you know, all the baggage that I've carried through the years. And I think, oh, man, how am I going <laughs> to rectify all that? But, um, yeah, he was definitely, he was definitely freaked. Marina, Marina, uh, 
what, tell me about your investigation, your investigation of David's death. Did you go to Bangkok? Did you, I mean, how did you pick up the trail and, and what did you find? No, I didn't. I, I read an article um, um, by, I'm forgetting his, Mark Ebert. Um, God, I have to look up his name, sorry. But he, it was an article for Maxim Magazine. And uh, he went to Bangkok to investigate the whole thing. And I, I contacted him afterwards, and he did not believe that David um, uh, died by asphyxiation in the closet. The closet wouldn't have held anybody. It, it was too you know, weak of a thing, and that it was staged. And that, that gut feeling fit for me, because I, I, that's what I believe, that it was a staged situation. <clears throat> um, and so what I did is I I, um, um, I called the um, uh, Thailand police and various leads that I would, I would get. I'd spend a lot of time calling Thailand. And um, eventually I did get a copy of the autopsy report from Thailand. And um, and I called the uh, the coroner there and spoke with her. And uh, it was just, it was really bizarre position to be in. I mean, I had a roll of toilet paper on my desk because I went through boxes of Kleenex. I was just sobbing all the time um and it in the autopsy report it 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 did not um ring true to autoerotic asphyxiation and um um i i just i knew you know whether it was a robbery intent or it was with intent so uh, and then i called the coroner here in la compared notes and it all pointed to um uh from that um with intent to kill this whoever was with david um uh it's not that they had motive to to rob him per se but um it it went beyond the um the act of a a sexual um gratification of the situation of what david was into which was strangulation and um it went far beyond that um it was you know the marks around his neck and things like that. It went far beyond what that act called for to um, to get off, pardon my language, but, but to get off from the situation. Right, right. So, so um, what, yeah. were personal effects missing? Was his wallet missing? Was jewelry missing? Uh, there was a source that uh, confided in me. They said that nothing was missing, but um, I'm going by that one source. There was a watch, uh, Patek Philippe, watch which was really expensive um it was not on him in the autopsy pictures um so i don't know uh, if he took it off where that ended up um i have i don't know so um that's all kind of in limbo to me um whether that was the motive or not um uh, i i still believe that he was um, um purposely um killed and and what was it in the autopsy that led you to you, you to believe that he was he was murdered uh, from the, the strangulation marks, there was um, a certain bone in the neck that was broken, and according to the coroner here in L.A., that does not happen unless you intend to kill a person with that kind of force. Right. And um, so were there, was he seen? Was there was a closed-circuit uh, camera video of showing him in the, the, in the, in the hotel the uh, elevator? The footage uh, was going to be sent to the... Um, uh, I think it was Michael Bodden here, or, or the or the family it was supposed to be sent by, uh, or to the attorney probably, 
And um, according when I spoke with the Thailand police, uh, they said, um, no, that was being held back. And then, you know, a long time went by, and um, I kept checking. And they said, finally, they said, no, the, um, the, the footage will not be released. The file is closed permanently. Sounds like a cover-up. Well, yeah. Uh, whether it's on, I don't think it was the Thailand part, according to these sources that, that came to me. It happened on uh, this end that they didn't want certain footage or what whatever was on the footage to be revealed, whatever that motivation was, I don't know. So there would have been, um, uh, presumably there would have been footage of security, footage of him in the elevator going up to the hotel with this other person. I, I would think, I don't actually know, um, but there was a camera, I think, uh, you know, in the hallway to the room. But then again, I was told that there was another access to the room via a window to, um, like, an adjoining room. So, so that wasn't the only access to the room is what I was told. And, Michael, when you're reaching out to David from the other side, what, <laughs> what, what images is he showing you? What, what, where is he leading you? Well, the, the, the stuff that I got was about um, his shock at the, at the whole thing. Um, like, um, it, it, it gave me pause because it didn't, I think that if he was, um, if he was doing, uh, if he was doing it himself, he probably wouldn't have been as shocked because uh, um, he probably would have felt a little more like, oh, you know, I, I screwed up and uh-oh. You know that kind of thing, but it seemed more like he was pissed and and shocked and and um, and, and the, the 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 sense that I got was he just didn't know how to rectify it. Like um, uh, it, it was like it was out of his control kind of thing. He didn't he didn't point to a person or he didn't say this person did it or that person did it. And sometimes they do that. Um, they can be really clear, but I think when I when I felt him, he was in that phase of going, oh, man, you know, it just like shocked. And so it just gave me the sense that maybe there was something else going on there um, than just what, what was being said. And, you know, I had talked to David about the, the auto situation thing before um, a long time ago. And because he said that was something that, that he was had talked about. And, and I, I made the comment that I thought it was, you know, kind of scary in the whole, you know, dangerous thing. And he just kind of brushed it off. And so when, when I saw him, it, I, I was expecting him to say, yeah, you're right. Or, yeah, boy, I really screwed up this time. But it wasn't like that. All right, it Michael, was, I've got to take a time out. Hold on. Marina Anderson, Michael Bodine, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke... There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the next hour, Nick Redfern is uh, back with a brand new book coming out in just a couple days, The Black Diary. And once again, he delves into men in black, women in black. This is kind of a, um, 
a new wrinkle in this uh, in this story I wasn't aware of. Uh, and this sort of connects with his previous book, Women in Black, the uh, the creepy companions of the mysterious men in black. And uh, he also uh, touches on uh, black-eyed children. That's uh, all coming up just after the top of the hour. Nick Redfern. Right now, Marina Anderson, actress, uh, author, uh, the, uh, the former wife of the late David Carradine, who's... Uh, passing is uh, nine years ago this very day in Bangkok under very mysterious circumstances. Uh, Michael Bodine, a psychic, is uh, with us uh, with us as well, the author of Growing Up Psychic. Uh, Marina, um, what was it you wanted to find out from Michael when you sort of put him on this on this case? What did you want to know specifically from him? Um, just really what the hell happened? Um, <laughs> you know, if you could get a hit on anybody in the room, um, you know, um, just based, and, and, you know, you know, what was he thinking? I, you know, medically what I, I learned is that when somebody's on opiates, it changes the brain chemistry. So it keeps upping the ante on what, uh, you know, excitement level. And it, it keeps, you know, to gratify, keeps getting higher and higher and higher, and they need more and more and more kind of a situation. So, um, you know, we're t- I was talking to Michael spiritually in a way of, of um, you know, what David might have been going through or thinking or something. And, you know, um, I think Michael, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you mentioned something like, well, he put himself, he knowingly put himself in a bad position. And so, therefore, yeah. um, in a way that's kind of committing suicide in a way, but it wasn't because there was another person involved and it just went, it went beyond. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it did feel like there was somebody else there, um, and and it, it felt like um, it did feel like there was somebody else there because uh, the way he was kind of acting was like I think he was thinking that that other person was going to help him or um, or fix the situation before it got to bed. It, it didn't. It, it just, it, he, like I said, he was just like in shock. And I think part of that was because I think he was thinking the other person was going to help. And um, it didn't feel like he was alone. I, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was more pissed that, that whoever was there wasn't more of a help um, or didn't, you know, you know, like you have a safe word or something. It's like, you know, they didn't react when they needed it, when he needed them to react. But, it, but there was like... Marie was saying there, you know, he did put himself in that situation, and um, and David, you know, was kind of like that, you know, he just, yeah, he, kinda, was, he just he liked to do crazy stuff and walking on the wild side, you know, <laughs> that was he, David. He, he pushed the envelope a lot. So and, it may not have been, in, yeah. it may not have been murder. Then it may have been an accident, and then they tried to cover it up. Is that the idea? Right. That, that that's what felt to me it, it felt like there was another person there that was maybe helping them or doing stuff with them and then it went bad and uh and they just freaked out and they, they kind of set it up and I, I i i think i think the people just wanted to kind of wrap it up in a bow and, and take care of it and as opposed to really dig into it because they don't think they really had anything or if they did it wasn't strong enough or whatever but i know that david felt like it wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, obviously, I didn't, he didn't want to die, but um, it wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. And he was, I think he, he always felt that he was smarter than most of the people in the room. And I think he thought that this was one of those times where he thought he, was, he had it all covered, and he didn't. And it, it seemed like that's one of the reasons why he was so pissed. 
Why wouldn't he reveal the, the, the person in the room with him? It was, is he trying to protect that person, do you suppose? Um, you know, it's funny. It's like sometimes, um, it, it, like there's this whole big picture thing, and sometimes sometimes they can. Like I, 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 I do a lot of ghost bustings, and, and we, I've done a lot of places where people were murdered, and, and the, the person will come and say, it's so-and-so, and this is what happened. And, and they're, but they're concentrating on that so much that, that you can really clearly hear it. I think in this case, when I was talking to David, there were so many things going on, and it was like he was trying to figure out, okay, what the hell happened with this and that and this, and why didn't this person help? And it was almost like um, that person was sort of an afterthought. It was like they were there, but it wasn't, it wasn't entirely their fault. It was his fault, but maybe they could have helped. And so it was like one of those conversations. It wasn't like he was... Like when I do these places and the person was murdered, they're very clear. They're very clear on what, why the person did it, who they were, what they looked like, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in this case, it wasn't like that. He was, like I said, he was just really shocked. He was like, "Oh crap!" Um, and he, um, that, that person was there, but they, they were sort of secondary because, in his mind, he should have had all the pieces covered. So I don't know that he felt. I think he felt like they were responsible in a way, but he felt even more responsible because. He should have had it covered. And, and they did show me it was a picture of a woman. Um, uh, she was Asian. Um, they um, were, you know, yeah. And, um, and it, it, you know, she was scared. And I think he was feeling pretty confident about things. And it just, I don't, I don't know that he blamed well, if if there was a a woman in the room with him and she, and he was accidentally strangled during this act, she must have had help, don't you think, Marina, getting him into the closet? I mean, there, she must have had. Oh God, yeah, I'd say he was what six two, six three. Exactly. I mean, he was not a, you know fragile little thing. <laughs> it would t- definitely have take more than one person to to stage that. Yeah, definitely. So she must have called for for help then. Unless there were it was more than one person in the room, which is what I believe. There was, it disappeared from the press. There was, um, they said, a mysterious footprint on the bed. And um, that disappeared from the Internet pretty quickly. Um, um, it was, you know, the, the informant to, that talked to me um, said that the person that strangled David was behind him on the bed. So that would explain the footprint um, ah, on the bed. All right. More than, um, more than one person. And there was more than, more, than, more than two people in the room, yeah. All right, we'll take another time out. Back with Marina Anderson and Michael Bodine right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Marina Anderson, former wife of actor David Carradine. It is the ninth anniversary of his death back in uh, Bangkok in his hotel room. And Michael Bodine, a psychic, author of Growing Up Psychic, From Skeptic to, skeptic to Believer. Marina, the, um, 
the other individuals uh, involved, uh, were they, I mean, were they seen by, perhaps by crew members or, or co-stars on this film that he was working on? Did they have, did you approach them? Did they have any information? I, I did not uh, approach them, no. Um, um, I, I had um, a couple people who uh, had connections, shall we say, um, uh, and one person who was um, very closely connected with the uh, production and the people involved. Um, but then again, I would bump into strangers and talk, oh, yeah, I, I met David, you know, months before he went over to Thailand, and he, this is a fellow who worked at... Uh, a restaurant in Chatsworth. They said, yeah, David came in with these six young Asian girls. They couldn't have been more than like 16 or something. I went, what? And um, his friend waited on them. And, you know, Chatsworth, it's a porn capital of Southern California, um, as they say. And so he's like, well, what was he doing with six young Asian girls, you know, a, a month before he goes to Thailand? There, there was still a lot of animosity towards David of, quote, stealing the role from Bruce Lee. There's a lot of different scenarios and theories that, that came to me that I put in the book of who, no matter who was in that room that, that could have been tied to these various theories of why, if he was murdered, which I believe he was murdered, um, why that happened. Um, one person said uh, one of the people involved was a, a relative of a close, uh, of a high government official, and then therefore they um, you know, obviously covered it up, and there was a lapse in time that was reported in the press, and that would justify that. I mean, it was very strange and weird to come up against these scenarios of what he might have been involved in. Um, let alone, David did carry a lot of cash on him. He's on location. He would he would not be, you know, using his credit card. So um, the, the theory of robbery could, you know, still come into play. Um, and just the fact that he was a famous rich American, you know, um, who knows? Um, all I know is that I believe he was not alone, and I believe it was intentional. Um, I just don't get the what's you know in those autopsy reports and and from those pictures um, by something that was um, supposed to be an enjoyable uh, sort of uh, activity that was not evident to me. Well, has he come through to you personally ever? Uh, have you had uh, dreams, Marina, or have have you have you seen? Have you had a vision, anything? Uh, I, um, well, particularly like the week that he passed away, I call it say messages. Um, I mean, I, I have, you know, other psychic friends who came to me and astrologers and with their, you know, um, pointers and, and uh, information and whatnot. Um, but um, I, I look for clues like, you know, I was pumping gas a week before his funeral and the car in front of me was, real dead the license plate real dead and it was a black car my nickname was blackie and I, to me that's a message that david was around it was, it was continuous and this guy at the antenna's restaurant handing me a red rose not knowing his name and i knew this person for for years but never knew his name his name was david um it was just things like that so i know um and i feel that he he still is around me um uh in and out um but um, not so much, uh, re- you know, for the past, you know, year or something. But now, every anniversary, I kind of feel like his presence um, every once in a while. So I, I look for those messages that I know it's uh, between the two of us. So um, I don't know. I, I, I've asked Michael about this too. So 
So they they do tend to go off on their own, don't they, Michael? <laughs> they kind of like, okay, I've had it here. <laughs> well, the thing is that, you know, when you, when you pass, you've you got to go this other side, and there's other things going on over there. And, it, you know, some people believe that you have to kind of uh, debrief something here, learn, you know, what the lessons you learned, the stuff you didn't do, and the stuff you did do, and all that kind of stuff. So they, they say they stay really busy against us. You know, it's tough for people to keep visiting over here because it's really difficult for the people that are living because they can't let go. And uh, the people that are past, it's difficult for them to go. It's, uh, you know, from what I understand, they, they kind of keep them um, limited to how many times they can like, show up. And, you know, I also know the time's a little different over there, too. They don't really have bolas over there, so they don't, you know, time is a little faster up there than it is here. Right. Now, is it is he is he now gone, Michael? Or uh, do you find that on an anniversary of a death that that they're more likely to come through? Well, it has that has happened for me. You know, a lot of times people show up um, on anniversaries, um, and I don't know if it's because we're thinking about them so much that we're more aware of that or or what. But uh, I know that that happens a lot. And but with David, you know, I haven't seen him for a while. I um, I feel. Every once in a while, I feel like it'll pop up, um, but only for a glimpse. But I, really, we haven't had a conversation forever. So I, I, I tend to believe that he's kind of, they, they're working on him on the other side more than they are him being here. Um, but I know he's got a lot of unresolved issues with people here. And I, I think he's, as he's becoming more aware of some of the things that he did or didn't do, that he probably wants to make amends to some of those people and or at least make them feel a little bit better and and so sometimes they can do that sometimes they can come down and just kind of which i've talked to michael about for me <laughs> right right well let's let uh, marina what what uh, it's a little difficult to understand michael because of the cell phone situation but what um when when david carradine was still coming through uh did he have messages for you through michael other than he w- he was sorry, um, um, and I go, yeah, it's a little too late, you know. <laughs> um, but um, I-, I have had David come to me in, in dreams, and it's always you know been um, very loving and and whatnot. And I'm, I'm, it's it's rather disturbing to me because um, of all that happened and the divorce. But regardless of all the animosity and everything, I still I was still very much in love with him when we divorced. So it was difficult. Um, but, uh, but um, again, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, that he was, you know, sorry, but not really able to, because of the situation, help me on, on you know, from his end here, like he was in limbo or something, or, or what? Yeah, it did, you know, his hands were tied a bit, and, um, you know, I think he was no really aware of what he wasn't doing and what he could have done, and, and the opportunity that was there for him had he chosen a different path. Um, Sorry, Michael, I have to jump in because we can't, we can't really hear you at this point. Um, so, no. Yeah, I'm sorry. That cell phone is uh, not doing the trick. Uh, so, Marina, do you, did you get, have you, do you have the sense that he's sort of living at, or on the other side, he's sort of tortured? Uh, or that, is he resolving some things? That, not so much tortured um, in the sense that... that um, Maybe it was my understanding because he put himself in that uh, dangerous position. Um, so it's he's kind of can't say immobilized either, but um, like he's not allowed 
to help. You know, he's got to see what the damage he he did. Um, I, you know, I'm I was always of the belief that you know when they cross over that uh, no matter what that they're always capable of helping. So I'm wasn't sure of my understanding of that. So um, um, I, you know, I, I definitely believe that he is, is sorry, and, it, and it's you know a few people that have told me that and um, um, does want to help. Um, so uh, I, I choose to stay with that belief, you know, that, that he is helping in some way. But I haven't felt that kind of connection in a while. So that's what makes me think that he's um, kind of off doing other things. <laughs> right. Um, would you welcome, yeah. would you welcome an, um, additional contact from him, or are you pretty much done at this point? Uh, oh, no, I would, I would welcome additional contact. <clears throat> yeah, Um uh, you know, sometimes I do uh, t- uh, talk out loud to him. You know, it's, you know, it's like, okay, Johnny, you know, <laughs> like that was his real name. You John did Arthur. this, and this is this is what I'm doing here now, and and you owe me. <laughs> but I I kind of do it with yeah, somewhat of a laugh. Um, but because I you know I do believe that he really truly was sorry for for you know crappy things that he did, um, and. Um, uh, you know, if they go into you know a, re- a review and want to want to do, do um, right by the person, so um, if he has a life review, a, that's going to be pretty tough. Do you believe that? If, that you that's what? What, if you have a, do you believe in that idea that when you're on the other side, you get a, a life review? Uh, you sit down and you sort of review all the things that you've done in your life, and you have to sort of account for that. I, I, yeah, I, I tend to believe that. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. going to be a long movie. And in David's case, a long, long movie. <laughs> Just, have you um, are, are you have you given up on sort of the investigation, or are there still things to be uh, to be, to be learned? Um, I've never, I haven't given up on the investigation entirely, although it is definitely a closed uh, deal on the Thailand side. I, I don't believe that surveillance footage will ever surface. Um, but um, you know, even after I I wrote the, the new edition, I would, you know met a couple of people who had their encounters with David, and um, I oh that's interesting, hmm, hmm. you know. And then, then I got okay, now I'm going to let it go. <laughs> I, I I think at some point somewhere down the line, there will be more information to come forward, um, because I, I I feel he was done wrong by whatever that was, and I, I feel that that has to be revealed. Um, you know, for him to be put in the press like that, that it was by himself, like Michael said, he was, like, embarrassed and whatnot. That, that, that's not right. Um, um, that has to be rectified, I feel, still. And that was part of my mission of doing the investigation, too, and putting certain things in there. Did you get any um, cooperation from the Carradine family? Um, I did not reach out to them, and they did not contact me. I was really close with um, um, the younger brother Robert. Um, I was obviously very fr- friends with, uh, very friendly with, with Keith as well. Um, but it just, um, it, we didn't st- for various reasons. There was no animosity or anything, but um, uh, it just it, we didn't stay connected uh, after David passed away. And um, 
which I felt very sad about because they were like brothers to me. So I I get emotional about that. Were they appreciative Um, of what you did for David, helping him sort of get back on track and and resurrecting his his career? Oh, 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 most definitely. They said, you gave us our brother back. And, And they were... Very grateful to you know about that, and they were very sweet to me. They 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 you know I have no complaints about the brothers at all. Uh, I just adored them, and um, I feel they they cared about me a lot. It just you know when you know Keith has his had his divorce. I was friendly with the ex-wife. It kind of got awkward. I mean, stiff stuff happened. <laughs> um, but um, with uh, Robert and his family, that that got a little weird with. The wife and uh, I was cut out of the um, family at that point after David died, and and to this day I don't know why she never wanted to talk to me again. So, um, so that remains a mystery too. One of these days I'll find out. What's um, next for you, Marina? Any uh, upcoming uh, television roles that we should know about? Uh, well, not immediately. I did a really fabulous film in Toronto called The Red Maple Leaf. I had Chris Christopherson, Mia Servio, Paul Servino, and James Caan, huge cast, and that had a very nice role in that. So um, that is the most recent. I, you know, continued to audition and, and um, have wonderful publicity clients, Alan Parsons, for one, um, Scott Harris, and I uh, do publicity for Michael, too. So, um, Sloan Bella, wonderful. So, I, you know, got great, eclectic, fabulous clients that I really enjoy doing publicity for. So, it keeps me busy in between. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, we have David Carradine, The Eye of My Tornado, and that's available at Amazon, I'm guessing? Yes. Uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, it's all the e-formats, e-book formats, Nick Kobo, um, Kindle, print-on-demand, you name it, and you, you can buy it. <laughs> Terrific. All right, Marina, always a pleasure. We'll talk. Thank you so much for this. Michael Bodine, sorry uh, we couldn't connect a little better with the, with the phone. Growing Up Psychic from Skeptic to Believer, also available at Amazon. Thank you both. Thank you. When we come back, Nick Redfern, Men in Black, Women in Black, Black-Eyed Kids, and Dangerous Books. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft. That greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. All of you checking out this transmission via one of our affiliate stations, now about 40 across North America. Of course, the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, both free downloads, the YouTube channel. Please hit the sub button. We're getting close to 8,000 subs. Uh, and, of course, all of our loyal listeners in the, uh, the live chat who join us each and every week. However and wherever you're listening and watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. 
Have you uh, subscribed to my podcast yet? Conspiracy Unlimited drops three times a week, new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And get this, we now have over 600,000 downloads since we launched in December. And you can listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, new episodes. And my other podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, which is part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. And again, that's The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. I'm getting a lot of very positive feedback. Um, people tweeting and emailing saying it's my new favorite podcast. So if you like rock and roll and strange mysteries, you're going to enjoy it. Just Google it, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. That's the best way to find it, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. I just finished a two a two part series on the murder of Elvis Presley, and people are really enjoying uh, listening to those. Hey, uh, Nick Redfern is standing by. I don't think there is another researcher author who has investigated the men in black phenomenon the way Nick has. And he is here with the very latest information on the sinister men in black, the chilling women in black, and the creepy black-eyed children. His new book documents dozens of never-before-seen stories of encounters with these creatures. And uh, he also talks about his own sightings of uh, men in black. Uh, He also discusses the ability of these multidimensional entities to invade our space in hostile fashion and how and why writing, reading, and even thinking about them can be hazardous. Nick is the author of more than 40 books. They include Men in Black, Women in Black, The Roswell UFO Conspiracy, 365 Days of UFOs. Uh, Nick has appeared on many TV shows, including the BBC's Out of This World, the Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive, the History Channel's Monster Quest, America's Book of Secrets, and UFO Hunters, the National Geographic Channel's Paranatural, and MSNBC's Countdown. His latest is The Black Diary. Men in Black, Women in Black, Black-Eyed Children, and Dangerous Books. Nick Redfern, welcome back to Consp- the, the uh, Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm good, thanks, Richard. How's it going? Terrific, thank you. Good. Uh, I know that your previous book uh, talked about Women in Black, but before that, I wasn't familiar. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, why should there not be Women in Black? But mm-hmm. I hadn't heard this being widely reported. Typically, when people have a UFO sighting or they have a, a close encounter, when they report being visited by uh, entities in black, they tend to be men. Is this a new, a new phenomenon? How did you find out about the women in black? Well, I actually, uh, about three years ago, um, wrote an entire book on the, the whole women in black phenomenon. And um, I think one of the reasons why it's been kind of overlooked is, is because the term man in black, everybody knows about it, even, you know, even the public knows it, thanks to the, uh, the movies. Um, but I think because uh, it is so iconic that people associate the man in black uh, only when it comes to people being threatened in relation to UFOs and other phenomena, but if you look throughout the history, you do find that there are now and again reports of these women in black, and they're typically very similar to the men in black who, you know, in the movies, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are secret agents of a, of a secret agency within government. But the vast majority of the real reports are very, very different, where they kind of look very pale and gaunt, and they have these oversized eyes, and they don't even look fully human. And that's the same with the women in black. They're typically described as having 
very, very pale skin, um, again, sort of slightly larger than uh, normal eyes. And they wear these long wigs that sort of, you know, come across their face and around their chin. So it's hard to sort of see them properly when they wear these wraparound sunglasses as well. Which And that's probably the whole point, is to sort of try and mask their real appearance, so to speak. Um, but John Keel, who wrote the Mothman Prophecies book, when Keel was investigating the Mothman stories in 66 and 67 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, he actually came across more than a few women in black cases where people who'd seen Mothman were visited um, by these women and um, who essentially presented themselves as doing things like census taking and things like that. So they didn't think anything of it until the questions started to get very, very strange. Has, has anybody had any strange nightmares? Um, have you seen anything unusual outside of your house late at night? That kind of thing. And um, and then the, the, the witnesses, the people realized that this was just a ruse, um, you know, saying they were doing a census. It was actually just a ruse to try and get into the house. And, um, and Keel actually um, put together quite a few of those cases. And these are not pleasant encounters, obviously, but what are they, what is it, how does a typical, if I can, if there is a typical encounter, mm. how does it usually go? They're, they're, they're told, uh, uh, you know, to keep quiet about what they've seen. How does it typically play out? Yeah, well, the vast majority of cases, whether it's the men in black or the women in black, typically they've had a UFO encounter. But in saying that, there have some be, been some cases where people claim to have seen things like Bigfoot and then they've been threatened. Um, and people using Ouija boards claim to have had experiences with the men in black and the women in black as well, just hours or days after using a Ouija board. But typically the experience occurs when it's usually late at night, there's a knock on the door. And of course, you know, if there's a knock on your door at, say, 11 o'clock at night, you're going to think, who on earth is that? So people go to the spy hole, and if you see sort of two or three creepy, pale-faced figures staring back, you're probably not going to open the front door, you know. But the, the weird thing is, most of the witnesses or the victims actually do open the door and let them in. And with hindsight, they felt as if they were somehow being sort of mind-controlled, mind-manipulated, hypnotized. And so they invite them in. And that kind of ties in with the old parallels and the legends of vampires where yes. they have to be invited in. And that's one of the interesting things. The black-eyed children, the women in black, men in black, all wait to be invited into the home. Now, when they get in the house, um, they then threaten the person not to talk about what they'd seen. And very often in these experiences, the person who is being threatened, they kind of feel in almost like a daze, like a, like a, a drugged state. Kind of one witness described as like um, if you could live in something like a real matrix world, you know, it, it was like a, almost a, an unreality type situation where things didn't seem quite right in the home as if it was almost like a vivid uh, like i said a, a real life matrix and when the threat has has finished um they just they turn and then they leave and and one of the weird things is how they arrive and leave is very often they sort of walk in these jerky fashions almost like a zombie you know sort of jerky movements along um so everything about the men in black is sort of very far removed from the whole 
um, imagery that you know Hollywood has parade as as presented. You know, and um, and yeah, they're, they're fun movies, but they definitely did sort of um, plant, if you like, in the mind of the public and a lot of UFO researchers who perhaps weren't overly familiar with it all assumed it was, you know, government agents, when it's more like, a, you know, something straight out of like an H.P. Lovecraft novel or something like that. Right. I mean, are there cases where where people are visited by what appear to be fully human sort of government yeah. G-men? Oh, yeah, there are. There's no doubt about that. And that's one of the interesting things, is that there seems to be two categories of men in black. There are these weirder ones, the strange-looking ones, and... There are examples where government agencies have sent people out to investigate UFO encounters, and particularly in the 50s and 60s, you know, all the guys wore sort of suits and black hats, you know, fedoras. So I think, you know, there's good evidence that at some point the government realized that there were these weird men in black going around, and they actually had no idea who they were, but the government realized that they could, or governments, I should say, realized that they could cover their tracks by actually sort of masquerading as the weirder group. In other words, it acted as, as a good camouflage for the government to pose as the men in black, even though, as I said, they didn't necessarily really know who the, the stranger ones are. And they still may not know, but equally they may still be using that sort of imagery as a means to um, ensure that nobody ever finds out who they really actually are. So, um, you know, there is at least two groups, I think, that sort of fall into that particular category of MIB. Nick Redfern, The Black Diary. We'll uh, come back and find uh, find out about Nick's own encounter with Men in Black, and we'll also talk about black-eyed children. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Nick Redfern is with us. And his latest, The Black Diary, Men in Black, Women in Black, Black Eyed Children, and Dangerous Books. All right, Nick, so tell me about your encounter with Men in Black. Did this follow a a UFO sighting, or how did it happen? No, it actually didn't, Richard. It was a very strange story, and which I tell in the book. And what happened was that um, this was back in the latter part of 2016, and I was writing an article for a website I write, uh, write for, Mysterious Universe. And the article was based around various um, people who, after either reading the novel or watching the movie, version of uh, the old movie uh, Rosemary's Baby, which is like a a supernatural satanic tale. And it was written in the 1960s uh, by a man named Ira Levin, and then it was made into a big box Hollywood movie. And what's really weird is a number of people who have read the book, watched the movie, have had paranormal 
experiences immediately afterwards. Now, a few years ago, I interviewed a guy named Peter Beckman, and Peter is a, a voiceover actor. He does a lot of voiceover for cartoons and, and shows and things like that. And he had one of these experiences um, where him and a friend back in the 19, late 1960s were actually playing the old vinyl LP version of the soundtrack, and then they had one of these weird spaced-out experiences where they saw suddenly these two weird-looking, pale, skinny, emaciated men in black, and their mind was kind of blurred as well as to the full facts. Now, I wrote about this in several other cases in the article, and then the next morning, I just I, when I got up, I sort of pulled the curtains open and looked through the blinds of my second-floor apartment window, and no word of a lie, there was a guy coming towards the apartment who had like a black suit on, um, black hat, and he was walking in a really strange way. His hands were sort of uh, hanging down, like, you know, if you've got a pet dog and you put him on the back's legs, you know, the, the front limbs, front paws kind of hang down. It was like that. And he was thin and very weird looking. And I, I just, I actually froze for like a few seconds. And then I raced to... Uh, to grab uh, my phone so I could get a picture and um, quickly dressed, raced down the steps and uh, managed to get the one picture, then um, grabbed um, some clothes and shoes to, uh, to, to follow him down the steps, so to speak. I got down the steps and turned right to see where he was and he wasn't there. And I finally found him sort of about 50 feet down the left-hand side of the next apartment block and he was just getting into the car. But uh, I managed to get a picture of him, and just one picture. But as I said, he, you know, he, he looked kind of strange, um, and he had this black hat on, like an old-style fedora hat, black suit, and you know, this was Dallas in sort of September uh, 2016, when it's still, you know, the height of the the weather. You know, in, in September in Dallas here, you know, the temperature's still like 95 sometimes, you know, on, yes. a, on a good day, so to speak. And nobody dresses like that, you know, around there. And um, he certainly wasn't a resident of the apartment. You know, you get to know everybody. How close did and, you get um, to him, Nick? How close did you get? And it was just get... really strange as well because of the timing with me having written this article the night before and obviously thinking about the movie, Rosemary's Baby and the book, when I was writing the article. And then suddenly, uh, like so many other people who've had these paranormal experiences after watching the movie or reading the book, um, and then I should get exactly the same thing within 24 hours of writing the article. And to me, at least, it just sounded um, just, you know, there's just no way it could just be coincidence. And um, And as I said, you know, the big irony was... People have always said, you know, what would you do if you um, you saw one of these? I said, well, you know, I'd question him and get pictures, etc., etc. And I got one. But even I, I just froze. You know, I just, I, it's kind of like when you're watching a car accident. You know, you just sort of stare for a, a minute, that kind of thing. And um, uh, Well, understandably, you were in shock. Yeah. How close did you get to him before he got into his car? Um, I was probably, when I took the picture, I was probably about, 20 feet away um, but I was able to you know since then to, to blow the picture up and it, you know it, and it's pretty clear um, but when I actually saw him uh, when I lost him uh, then I saw him getting in a car and there was three other guys they weren't dressed 
uh, like him, but they got in the car with him as well, and uh, and then just drove off. And I asked a few people around, you know, did you see this guy? And um, you know, sort of wandering around, and um, nobody else saw him. That was a strange thing, you know. And um, it was sort of like nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, where you know people are getting ready to do things and whatever, and um, and nobody saw him. So that was kind of odd as well. And um, but you know that that's why the in the book, uh, my book. Um, the subtitle includes the words dangerous books because there are a number of cases like this where people have read books like for example the first book on the men in black which was called um, they knew too much about flying saucers published in 1956 and then the second one called flying saucers and the three men published in 1962 a number of people who read those books claim that afterwards they saw the men in black or they started to get these weird hang-up phone calls in the middle of the night. And, um, and several people, in one case, the, the Flying Saucers and the Three Men book, which was written by a guy named Albert Bender, two people actually sent their copies back to the publisher because they got this creepy vibe from the book, as if it was almost somehow like supernaturally infected, and they just got this weird sort of unsettling vibe of even just holding the book. And so they sent, and that's when the same people who had these experiences, and so they just sent the book back. And one of them actually burned the book as well. So that kind of demonstrates how, for whatever reason, people pick these books up and they just, they kind of feel almost, you know, infected by something supernatural. Now, had you not tried to take a photograph of this character, would he have come, do you think, directly to your apartment? Would he have knocked on the door? Was he looking well, for you? Actually, you know, I've never really thought of that. I just, I kind of just, you know, saw him, took the picture, and then made the association with the time with the whole Rosemary's Baby thing the night before and the day before. Um, I guess, you know, I could sort of hypothesize or whatever, but I mean, all I can say for sure is that if it was a weird coincidence, and if just a regular guy happened to walk past my window at the very same time I opened the blinds to see what the weather was like and and you put it together with the time of the article then you could put it down to coincidence but you have so many factors involved um, that I honestly don't think it was coincidence I think there was something much bigger going on and it, it also happened at the time where I was having a lot of other weird things going on and this was when I was writing this particular book. And um, and John Keel found that when he was writing about the men in black, he would start to have weird experiences, almost as if when you think about them, research them, it's almost like a, an alarm bell goes off where they realize what's going on and then turn the table, so to speak. And this has never happened to you before, except for no, with no, Rosemary's I mean, Baby. What, well, what I would say is that when I've been researching and um, writing and even doing radio for other shows on The Man in Black, I have had weird experiences like that. But certainly in the last two years, it was elevated hugely. And no, I've never had an experience with a Man in Black type character before or since. You know, um, it's just this one occasion two years ago. Um, but, you know, for the most part, people only really do see them just once. There are a few exceptions to that rule, but mostly it is 
it is just one. But, um, you know, when, when you kind of see this happening, not just to you, but to friends, um, um, you know, who, who are interviewed for the new book, and after the interview, then they started to be become the victim of these things as well. So, again, how that can happen, you know, that's the big question. But the all I can tell you for sure is that, you know, it does happen. You think about them, and it's almost as if they know you're thinking about them. Well, last time we had you on, Nick, we were talking about your your uh, your more most recent book, which was about the whole Slender Man oh, yeah. um, phenomenon. And, and you were describing um, sort of this Tibetan... A legend where the monks are able to manifest these demons with their minds is is that sort of related yeah. to what we're talking about here yeah the, 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 it's basically a phenomenon known as thought forms or with buddhi in buddhist terms it's called a tulpa t-u-l-p-a and the theory is that the human mind the collective human mind like the hive mind so to speak if enough people focus on something in their mind and think about it, dream about it, write about it, obsess about it, etc., etc. But if enough people are focusing on one thing, they can sort of create a real-world equivalent of like a fictional entity. And that's what may have happened with the Slender Man, which was created as, a, as, a, as a, just a piece of internet, uh, like a competition, a contest. Uh, but now people see the Slender Man in the real world because, I think... Um, so many people sort of uh, are so focused on it, thousands and thousands, that they may well have sort of given birth in a very strange way to a, a creature of the mind, which then steps out of the imagination and becomes self-aware. And there are actually some people who think that could be what the men in black are, that more and more people are aware of them and come to believe in them. And then again, that the human mind creates them unwittingly and inadvertently, and then they take on their own um, character almost, if you like. And um, I've actually wondered, you know, if, if something like that could have happened with me. You know, I mean, I mean, I have the photo, but I mean, is that all it is, or could it be? You know, the fact that I've focused so much on the Men in Black mystery over the years, having written five book, four books on it and one on the Women in Black, you know, could it be all that focus actually causes them to manifest but it's it's us who's doing it which would be even more kind of disturbing if we were creating them and we couldn't do anything to stop it have you given given any consideration to the idea that maybe the whole ufo phenomena is a tulpa that that, it, that they are manifestations well, thought forms you know i mean one of the things is that um, certainly if you look at the ufo subject over the years the 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 ufos themselves have sort of changed to mirror the technology of one particular period for example back in the 1800s people didn't see flying saucers they saw what were <clears throat> what were known as phantom airships and they were slightly advanced of the airships that we had back then then in the 1940s in the second world war you had these strange balls of light that were known as the foo fighters which is which is where the band got their name from then in the in the uh, late 1940s, you had ghost rockets, which were like rocket-type ships. Then you had flying saucers. Now, people today don't really see flying saucers anymore. They see these large, black, triangular-shaped craft. So, 
in many cases, what we find is that the UFOs change as our technology changes. So if it is us creating these images, then it would make sense that we would be creating things similar to the, you know, the up-and-coming technology. Um, but, you know, the people say, well, why can't we not stop thinking about them? Well, it's not easy to stop thinking about things. You know, if I said to someone, stop thinking about the men in black, well, the first thing you're going to do is think about the men in black. And it's very difficult to put something out of your mind when it's on your mind constantly. And I think that's what happened with the thousands and thousands of kids who have obsessed on the Slender Man. They cannot get out of their mind. And as I said, that hive kind of connection um, causes them to come into being. And um, so I, th I, d I don't think that can explain the whole paranormal phenomena. But I do think that a good case could be made and possibly, you know, with some of the Manning Black cases, that understanding the phenomenon, looking into it, thinking about it, could actually cause you to create it. And you have no actual understanding that you ever had any, any role in it. You just think you saw this thing, not realizing you may have created it in the process. Do the do the men in black or the women in black when they when they threaten somebody you know don't report what you saw if someone actually does report what they saw do they ever get a return visit did, in other words do the men in black women in black ever follow through on their threats as far as we know well that's one of the interesting things because actually they really don't um, they don't sort of come back usually more than once but what I can tell you is that if people have had a threat and they do continue to talk about it or, you know, they contact a UFO group or the local press, those people, they don't get like a second visit, but they typically do get these weird phone calls um, where, you know, the phone rings, say, two or three in the morning and it wakes them up with a jolt, so they go to the phone. When they pick it up, it's usually like weird static on the line or it sounds like, like a language, but a language that they just cannot understand and sometimes like a very fast chattery voice um which also they're not able to understand um and again you know there's no direct threat it's more sort of um an Im intimidation just caused by the just the sheer weirdness of picking the phone up and hearing these electronic bleeps or static or this sort of or like a sinister very fast language you know, um, and it really, it actually really does intimidate a lot of people. And there are so many stories of those, those kind of follow-ups where there hasn't been like a literal physical follow-up, but there has been this angle of um, sort of uh, early hours phone calls and, and things like that. And there have also been some cases where people have woken up in the middle of the night, sort of semi-paralyzed and unable to move, and they see like a shadow version of the men in black looming over them. Now, you know, the men in black look physical, but this subcategory, which I also talk about in the book, which is growing in interest, um, is what's known as the shadow people. And they look, it's like a shadowy human figure, but within the shadow people category, there's like a subcategory known as the hat man. And the hat man looks like the men in black, but it's like a flat shadow and people have seen those in the bedroom after they've seen a visit, excuse me, after they've had a visit. So, 
again, there's a lot of different categories and um, and sort of side effects. It gives me side effects to these whole and it seems, black experience. It seems some may be more dangerous than than others. I had Paul Tate and Rosemary Ellen Guiley on the show. I guess it was last week or the week before, and. Uh, there are people that are being attacked in their beds uh, by these specters. Nick, hold on. We'll take a time out, come back, and we'll uh, delve into black-eyed children. The book is The Black Diary. Nick Redfern right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Nick Redfern is with us, the author of over 40 books. The new one is The Black Diary, Men in Black, Women in Black, Black-Eyed Children, and Dangerous Books. Speaking of dangerous books... Uh, are, are any of your books on the list, uh, Nick? Have any, has anyone ever reported after reading one of your books they receive a visit from a man in black or a woman in black? Um, well, not yet. <laughs> I mean, the, the new book where I'm sort of talking about all this, you know, as you know, has literally just come out in the last week. But uh, I always get a lot of feedback from the book. So, you know, it would be interesting to see, um, you know, what, what actually develops. But... Um, I mean, in terms of this sort of negative backlash, um, what's particularly interesting is that I haven't actually seen it in most books, you know, on UFOs or anything like that. But as I said, it's, it has happened in a number of Men in Black-based books. So, and again, I don't think that is a, is a, is a coincidence. I think somehow, you know, the, the phenomena does have some sort of deep connection to us, um, you know, in terms of... Um, you know, uh, sort of infringing on our reality. But um, I have a lot of stories from people who, for example, were reading about the the black-eyed children and researching it, and they started to have weird... A lot of weird stuff happened, like um, electronic equipment in the house sort of uh, all failing at the same time, like refrigerators, microwaves, um, electric kettles, light bulbs shattering, exploding in a couple of cases. And... This happened when the people were reading, you know, sometimes like sitting in bed late at night, you know, reading, and they suddenly hear a bang somewhere or something would light up. And, um, and this would happen in several cases. This happened over three or four um, times where the people would have the books out or reading, you know, files, etc., or reading about on the Internet. And then suddenly things go haywire again to the point where some of the witnesses actually... Um, said that enough's enough and, you know, just dropped out of the subject because they just felt it was just getting too disturbing for them. You know, I have a, a something similar to to, uh, to share. I hmm. have done a number of interviews uh, regarding the whole, you know, Robert Johnson, the, the devil at the crossroads. You know oh, that yeah. story. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my last interviews on the radio with uh, R. Gary Patterson, who passed away about a year ago, uh, we were talking about his trip down to the crossroads. Uh, he made a, a pilgrimage down to uh, Clarksdale. Mm-hmm. And um, just like you said, the phone went offline, uh, the computer went down, and uh, then 
uh, we got we got him back on. We did the show. Then, uh, just a couple of months ago, I was interviewing another author, Matt Swain, about the same topic for for my podcast. And we did the interview. It sounded fine. When I went back and checked, <clears throat> excuse me, the audio, there was this crackling throughout the entire thing. I had to, we had to do the whole interview again. Then I had Matt Swain on Coast to Coast. We talked about the crossroads. Wouldn't you know it? We got knocked off the air for ten minutes. So I don't know if that's the same thing going on, but um, I don't know. Someone didn't. Someone didn't want us talking about that. Well, that does happen a lot. I mean, one of my um, previous books on the Men in Black, the same thing actually happened on Coast to Coast and also on one of uh, Whitley Strieber's shows. And so, I mean, I know for a lot of people it's probably going to sound crazy and paranoid, but all I can tell people for sure and, and honestly is that that really is what people have reported. And um, had I not, you know, sort of experienced the same kind of thing, you know, I wouldn't be in a position to be sort of, from my perspective, you know, sort of full-on full believer in this aspect of the phenomenon where it kind of, you know, creates a backlash, so to speak, um, the closer you get to it. Has anyone reported uh, be fighting back or resisting a visitation from the men in black or the women in black? Any clues as to how you can sort of, I don't know, counteract them or repel them? Oh, yeah. Well, that's actually a really interesting aspect, when it, particularly when it comes to the men in black and the women in black. The reason being that there have been some cases where, although the person felt sort of hypnotized and mind-controlled and their self-will was being taken away from them, several of them were able to sort of break the spell and said, get out of here or I'm calling the police, things like that. And when the person is actually able to sort of even briefly just stand up for themselves so to speak um, it creates like a glitch and it's as if they don't know what to do and they fumble and they're in stumble in some cases and they don't know what to do and they quickly leave it's almost that almost like you know you've sort of inserted something into their you know their their mind if you like and it scrambles them and it's almost as if they're programmed to perform one specific task, which is to threaten the person. And if something goes wrong, you know, it's like their program, um, you know, is, is being affected by the response of the person. So, you know, that's an interesting aspect. The, you know, when you, if you're able to break the spell, they typically leave very quickly. Any reports on whether the Jesus uh, prayer or any type of prayer will work? Um, that I'm honestly not sure about, but I can tell you that certainly when people have broken that spell and they've shouted at them, you know, like a great deal of emotion projected at them, they do, that's when they'd leave. You know, so that's, that's an interesting part. Now, when it comes to the black-eyed children, um, they also, you know, um, find a way into the house, and again, which is usually like a form of mind control, um... But what the big difference is that the the black-eyed children, for 99% of all cases, there is no UFO component. Um, people are quite surprised at that. They think it's all connected, but it isn't. Now, there are a lot of parallels between the men in black and women in black and the black-eyed kids in the sense that all three groups wear black. You know, the men in black, women in black usually wear sort of like a black business suit. The black-eyed kids 
uh, whose eyes are black, you know, they usually wear these black hoodies with the hood part pulled right down as far as they can get it across the face so that people don't see the solid black eyes that they have. Nick, I've got to jump in. We're going to take another quick time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into black-eyed kids. The Black Diary, Nick Redfern, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Nick Redfern stays with us. Nick, would you rather have a visit from men in black, a woman in black, or black-eyed kids? Which do you fear the most? Uh, Well, I wouldn't say I fear the phenomenon as such. I think I'm not sort of that kind of mindset. You know, I'm not sort of intimidated easily. But I think... um, Well, I I would actually... I I don't think, you know, it's possible to sort of... uh, define it just down to one because they're all extremely similar and all kind of dangerous and and threatening so i think you know um hopefully i would have the i would be able if the spell was there so to speak that people report hopefully i might be able to break it and um you know have have conscious recall of the whole thing which a lot of people don't a lot of it does feel to them as if there are huge patches of the threat when the men in black are in the house, you know, a lot of it is missing. So um, I guess the answer would be, hopefully, you know, I wouldn't get to see any of them from a threatening angle. Um, But certainly, you know, if there was a lot of reports in one area, say, I'd I'd go looking and and try and, you know, solve it, because that's, that's what I'm here to do, you know. The uh, the incidents where people uh, encounter black-eyed kids, does it happen more often in, an let's say, an isolated parking lot, or do they come to the person's house? Is there a well, commonality? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's almost always at night, which is all pretty much the same with the men in black and the women in black. Um, and it is very often when the witness is, is isolated, or, you know, if there's a knock on the door, Weirdly, it's when, say, for example, you know, let's say, a, you know, a woman answers the door and her husband's out or vice versa. So it's almost as if they can time it when there's only the one person is in the house they want to target. But what's kind of creepy about a lot of the black eyed children cases is that in those cases where they've managed to get into the house by, again, using this mind control to allow them to be invited in, the witnesses have said they've started to feel weak and kind of tired and exhausted as if almost as if they were being drained of their energy by the black-eyed children and that's one of the more sinister theories that's been put forward that they are quite literally sort of um digesting us in a bizarre way you know that they're sort of um draining us of our life force of our energy uh, one witness described it as, um, in relation to the men in black, this case is, um, because you get this in the same with the MIB and the women in black, one of the MIB 
witnesses said um, he felt how probably a diabetic would feel if, you know, they'd missed breakfast, missed lunch, and then it was like 10 o'clock at night and they're in that danger zone where everything's plummeting and they've got to eat, you know. Um, and that's how people have described it. It's, it's as, literally as if they're being drained of their energy, of their life force. And as I said, there are cases like that with the men in black and the women in black. So some people have theorized that perhaps the, the threat could be a ruse. You know, don't talk about this. It could actually be the, a ruse to cover their, their real goal, which is to essentially use us as a kind of food or as, as fuel, so to speak. You know, we view us as, you know, the top creature on the planet when we're actually not, you know. Um, we're just the most, um, you know, expansive one across the planet, so to speak. But, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that we could actually be being used as a commodity, so to speak, is quite a disturbing one for a lot of people. You know, the idea that um, we are somehow being bled dry of some sort of like a psychic energy or something which they can siphon off us. Maybe they really are vampires. Well, I mean, nobody's ever talked about sort of literally being bitten and drained of blood. But what I will say is that there are a lot of parallels with the old vampire tales, like the main one being that, you know, the men in black, as you might think or might assume, they never force their way in. They don't kick the doors down. They wait until the person invites them in, which is always when the person's in that sort of mind-controlled state. That happens with the black-eyed children and the women in black as well. Um, and also, you know, you've got this draining of energy. So it would not surprise me if some of the old legends of literal blood-sucking vampires may actually have had some sort of degree of um, truth to them, but perhaps in a distorted way, you know. It wasn't like some guy in a big black cloak, you know, draining somebody's blood, but it could have been somebody in a black outfit even hundreds of years ago, like a cloak, you know, etc., and draining somebody of their energy. So I think, you know, when you look at it like that, maybe some of these old legends that really do you know, have some sort of um, basis in reality. And you often find a lot of folklore, um, you know, do have bases in reality. Sure. Uh, what happens if, the, if you're touched by one of these uh, black-eyed children? I always hear that. Don't let them touch you. Don't let, whatever you do, don't let them touch you. Oh, well, I mean, that's a, an even more disturbing thing because there are cases where people have been in very close proximity to the black-eyed children, the men in black and the women in black, and they touch them, or they, you know, the the black-eyed kid or the or the man in black has touched them. Um, there are cases where literally within hours or at the most days, the people have felt sick, and in some cases with really strange and bizarre and very rare conditions, um, and you know to the point where they too felt that they've been somehow like supernaturally infected or or their immune system had been crashed by these things somehow. Has anyone ever died as a result of being in contact with the black-eyed children? Um, well, in the new book, a friend of mine, Tracy Austin, who's investigated a lot of the uh, black-eyed children cases, um, she, when I interviewed Tracy, she told me um, as to how she, one of the cases she investigated 
um, was where there were these repeated MIB cases. And um, the, the, the person who was having these experiences, their parents um, died very quickly um, cl and close together as well, literally within weeks of all this going down. And, um, and when she spoke to Tracy, um, she felt that, you know, there was some sort of connection, that there was almost as if it was like a curse, you know, or again, like a supernatural infection of some sort. But she definitely placed the, um, placed it in that context that her parent, the, her parents had died as a result of the, the proximity and the association with the black-eyed children. Has, um, it just, I, I'm looking at the cover of, uh, of your book that, that you wrote previously, Women in Black, and uh, this is, um, there's a, a quote on here about she shrank from him with a hissing sound. Mm. Has anyone ever uh, sort of attempted to, to communicate with them in, in a, sort of an irrational way, uh, mm -hmm. find out, you know, what they, what they really well, want, where they're from? Mm -hmm. Actually, for the most part, I can think of, no. Um, people are just so kind of terrified. You know, it's a kind of a cross between or combination of terror, fear, and this sort of weird, almost spaced out mind control. And so people don't, unfortunately, for the most part, people don't act as you would imagine, to, imagine them to act normally, you know, like inviting them in when no one would ever do that. You know, you'd never let three people in, a, you know, you're through your front door at midnight just because they knocked on your front door. So that's, that's one of the problems. People don't react and act in relation to them as, as they should or, or we would hope they would. I mean, like with the black-eyed children, um, there's several cases where they opened the door to them and the, they were still fighting in their mind to prevent them from being let in. And but what's weird is that one of the witnesses said that as the the one of the, the black eyed kids said, you know, can we come in? We're lost. Can we use the telephone to phone our parents? It's like midnight, you know, and they've got these solid eyes, black eyes. And although the witness was terrified and was kind of saying, no, you can't come in, he suddenly realized that his hand was actually open, starting to open the door, even though his voice was saying, no, you can't come in. It was like his arm somehow had been controlled to open the door. And at the last moment, he realized what he was actually doing. He was denying them entry, but in the same process, physically letting them in. And when he kind of realized, again, it sort of broke that, glitch if you like or created a glitch i should say in the you know in the process which was supposedly you know supposed to go smooth from their perspective uh do you think there's a relationship between uh mib women in black black eyed children and the gin um well i mean you mentioned rosemary earlier rosemary ellen guiley i mean rosemary's looked into this angle as well um, now, a friend of mine um, named Buffy Clary, who I interviewed for the book, um, she borrowed my copy of Rosemary's book. And, on, and no word of a lie, I swear this is true. When she was reading the book on two occasions, um, she, was, she had um, lightning strikes. In the first one, it sort of um, affected... It, it, she was working on her laptop, and it was right in the room 
and, uh, and caused damage to her laptop and all sorts. Now, the second situation um, was um, she was actually in her front, excuse me, in her backyard, and the the tree in her backyard was struck by lightning, and it was so close that she felt the effects of it and had to go to the local hospital uh, to be treated um, because he just felt kind of really weird and, and, and ill from being in close proximity to this lightning strike. And um, and certainly Rosemary, you know, has uncovered cases as well um, where, and it's the same, you know, with, with her book, that things that people look into, it's as if the phenomenon starts to realise and then they get bad things happen to them. But yeah, but Buffy, she had um, two experiences after you know, she'd sort of delved into Rosemary's book. And um, and that shook her as well, you know, because she realised there was this context between the lightning strikes on her, and in one case almost directly, and the context between the or the, the time frame of, of her having the book and reading it each time, you know, something bad would happen. Uh, I think of the movie The Exorcist, which is one of the you know the all-time scary movies. I remember seeing it at the drive-in theater, and I never will watch it if it comes on TV. We won't allow it in the house. Um, what are some of the? You mentioned Rosemary's Baby. What are some of the other dangerous books that you uh, you, you mention in 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 your book? Oh well, I mean, sir, I would say more than any other, at least from from my own perspective, as I know, would be Albert Bender's 1962 book Flying Saucers and the Three Men. Now, Albert Bender was the guy who really kicked off the UFO phenomenon, uh, excuse me, the, the Men in Black phenomenon as a part of the overall UFO phenomenon in the early 1950s. And Albert Bender's book tells a story that, you know, I mentioned H.P. Lovecraft earlier, it's far more Lovecraft than it is ufology. And he saw these sort of creepy men in black literally manifest in his bedroom now albert bender was a heavy um investigator of um the occult he wasn't just into ufos he was deeply involved in the occult and trying to summon up supernatural entities and i think that has a lot of bearing on his experiences but um um as i as i briefly mentioned but i'll expand on um his publisher was gray barker um, and Gray Barker was the guy who wrote the first book on the Men in Black. Now, when um, Flying Saucers of the Three Men was published, written by Albert Bender, um, Gray Barker got a lot of feedback from the readers of the book. Um, some of them said they enjoyed it. Some of them said it kind of disturbed them. And more than a handful said they, they, they got a lot from it, but they felt nervous from reading it, and could they get a refund and send the book back to them? And um, because they felt that somehow the book itself had, or it was almost as if the book itself had a, had a supernatural presence to it, and just looking at it on the table, they felt uneasy with it being there. And Gray Barker um, agreed to refund the money, you know, and just mail the books back to me. And then he wrote a smaller book, um, called The Bender Mystery Confirmed, which followed on from Albert Bender's Flying Sources and the Three Men. And it basically told the story of all these people that read the book and felt that somehow the book was not just a book, that it seemed to be sort of saturated in sort of a, a supernatural energy that they felt they could feel when it was in their hand, 
or just looking at it somehow. They just they just got the shivers, you know. Nick, always a pleasure. The Black Diary, MIB, Women in Black, Black Eyed Children in Dangerous Books, and I believe the publishing date is uh, June 5th, the day after tomorrow. Congratulations and thanks yeah. for this. All right. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. Ian, Albert, Ryan, thank you all. Back next week. And uh, who do we have uh, quickly, Albert? RFK special, 50th anniversary. And uh, uh, Thomas Rosetto. Right, exactly. On enlightenment. All right, until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.